You're listening to The Digital Economist, a speaker series where we talk to global action leaders on the most urgent topics and challenges we face today in climate, health, society, and economics. I'm Arvinder Singh, a technology entrepreneur, and along with our founder, Navroop Sahadev, I'm sitting down with global leaders to talk about their journeys, how they envision the future, and how their work is creating an impact. The Digital Economist is a global impact ecosystem focused on building insights, products, services, and programs toward human and planetary outcomes. Launched at Davos in conjunction with the 50th annual anniversary of the World Economic Forum, we are a multidisciplinary impact platform where ideas are born, nurtured, and implemented to create a better, thriving world. I am Navroop Sahadev, and we believe that technology is an enabler, and our collective power to steer it towards human and planetary betterment is the most urgent need of the hour. Hello, and welcome, everyone, to the Digital Economist Speaker Series, uh, a weekly series of uh, some of the top global action leaders um, working at the intersection of technology, business, and uh, impact in the world. Uh, we are really honored, delighted to have Alex Pentland from MIT joining us today. Uh, before we jump into it, uh, just very quickly about the Digital Economist. So the Digital Economist is a global impact ecosystem um, convening scholars, uh, industry experts, as well as uh, uh, product managers and developers who are working at the intersection of technology, uh, economics, and business, and uh, bringing these actionable insights, but also uh, the actual products and services towards building a human-centered digital economy to the fore. So we're very happy to have you here, Sandy. Just very quickly about Sandy's background and introduction. Um, Sandy um, is an advisory board member at the Digital Economist and holds a triple appointment at MIT, um, and he leads MIT Connection Science, which is a cross-industry platform at um, MIT that uh, convenes both the internal as well as the external stakeholders. Uh, And a lot of exciting work on social physics, Um, uh, very inspiring, Sandy, for us throughout the years. Um, So very happy to to invite you here, to have you here. Um, uh, Please, the stage is all yours. Great. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I hope uh, everybody is awake. I know it's very early where you are in the group. Uh, uh, much, much more sort of sane hour here, despite my background, which makes it look like night. Uh, I'm in Boston. Let me share my screen. And uh, I want to talk for about 20 minutes about a, a sort of a new way to think about digital and entrepreneurship that is uh, more suited to today's climate. So today's climate has low interest rates, high real inflation. Don't believe that CPI stuff they tell you about. Um, And of course, large numbers of communities are economically devastated. Uh, Entire uh, uh, governments have incredible levels of debt and so forth. And, And so this actually looks a lot like the end of World War II. It's been since then that the levers of levels of debt have been this high, that the economies have been in such disarray. 
that you get unemployment and other sorts of damage. And the question is, is what do you do in an environment like this? It's very different than the way we've thought about it in the past. And the things that worked in the past are not so likely to work uh, today. So let me talk a little bit about that. Let me see if I can make this all go. Um, I'm going to have to move things around a little bit, but you should be able to see that. So um, I want to talk about building a new economy. That's the name of a book I have just out at MIT Press. It's, it's online for free, so you can just Google Pentland New Economy and you'll find it. Um, and one of the core ideas is that we have now data as capital. So data has become something new in our environment that it never was before. But let me give you a little bit about my background. Um, I did a lot of the original work on wearable computing, you know, the sort of things that are now cell phones and Apple watches and so forth. Uh, and one of the things I noticed is that there's going to be a ton of data. This was back in the late 1990s. And so I, I started a discussion uh, in the World Economic Forum about how can we handle data? And, and members of that uh, discussion group were the Justice Commissioner of the EU, the Chairman of the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. And one of the things that came out of that is the General Protection Acts, the G GDPR in Europe, the privacy regulations. And it inspired similar sorts of movement here in the U.S., which is uh, you see in the California law and other ones that are before Congress. Um, also, uh, using that same idea, did a series of countrywide experiments in Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire, but also Italy and in the UK, showing that uh, there's a real good side to this data. You can actually do things like track pandemics. You can do things like uh, identify pockets of poverty much faster. You can look at inequality. You can plan uh, uh, all sorts of interesting things like transportation, health networks, uh, and you can do economic development much better by use of this data. <clears throat> and the UN Secretary General called that the data revolution. Uh, and uh, we were able to incorporate this work into the sustainable development goals as metrics for how to keep track of how the UN and, and the world is doing on these goals. Um, and today I work with a number of those institutions still, the UN, World Bank, uh, uh, IEEE, and so forth. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. So one of the, the key things today is that uh, people do not trust uh, the data and AI economy. And I like this picture, you know, with Google and Facebook and Amazon as uh, looking for this new oil, right? Um, people want control and trust in outcomes. And this is to be expected. Um, just like in the past, we fought uh, to have control over land so that citizens can own land and own real property, because at one time that was not true. Uh, we fought in the sort of beginning of the 1900s to control labor uh, because we were being exploited by large corporations. Today we have these mega corporations that control so much of the data, much more than in governments, for instance. And uh, it's a very similar type of a thing where what I'm going to be advocating is 
people need to take back control of those to help themselves. They're much like the labor movement or the uh, credit union movement that started modern banking uh, and the way we deal with land. And I like to call this the New Deal on Data. That's the title I used to start the discussion that led to GDPR. You can find the paper online if you want to sort of read about it. Um, and, and as I said, the key thing is, is to think of uh, data as a new means of production, like money, like labor, like land. And uh, if it's a new means of production on that level, then you need to have lots of infrastructure to go with it. Um, and people often characterize all this data as bad. Oh, it's surveillance state, etc. And And of course, those things are bad. But, but data and use of data is not inherently bad. What's bad is that it's in too few hands. And this is a quote from Thomas Pedicke about uh, financial capital and arguing that, you know, yeah, sure, you can have big returns to money, but the problem is all the money is in too few hands. Same sort of argument with uh, data. And I'm going to show you how to break that, how to put that data in the hands of people. So to own our data, we need to have new institutions. Um, how are we going to do that? Well, the natural thing today is you think about, well, we're going to lobby Congress or something like that, and uh, that's not terribly successful uh, as a way to move forward. They're usually last to the party, not first to the party. The things that we need is we need digital identity. We need to not have identity theft. We need to be able to prove who we are when we need to. We need to have ownership rights over data. That's not the same thing as completely owning the data because most data is co-created, but it's the ability to know what there is, who's using it, control that, have a copy of it, and so forth. You need to be able to audit this because you shouldn't trust that people are using your data correctly uh, and have accountability. So this is very parallel to money. You know, when you deposit things, they identify who you are. They want to know it's really you, and you have ownership rights over that data, and the banks are audited, and there's insurance, there's accountability, uh, there's even criminal penalties for misusing money. Same thing needs to happen uh, with data. So a means of production requires the sort of basic rights to go with it. How do you do that? Well, I've already sort of mentioned a little bit, so in the 1870s in the U.S., rural communities, and it was mostly rural communities at that time, felt they were being abused by commercial banks, uh, and they set up their own banks. And that's where credit unions came from. And in fact, that is the thing that sort of established the regulation, the other sorts of things that led to a much more fair and useful uh, and trustworthy banking system. Now, I know there's problems with the too-big-to-fail banks, but basically, when you stick your money in the local bank, you are quite confident you can get that money back. And they don't take it from you, and they are accountable, and you can use it to pay. So you actually control things in a way that you don't control data. And in the early 1900s, the same thing was true of labor. Big corporations uh, exploited citizens for their labor, uh, and people formed into unions, local at first, one plant at a time, one industry at a time. Uh, but in general, that pushback 
uh, began to change regulation, began to change the norms of behavior. And today we have norms that are much more friendly than they were uh, a, a century ago. And so it's local groups of people, communities, physical communities, not digital communities, um, that drove these things. And, and it's not by accident that it was physical because you need people who have uh, shared common interests. So you can have a Facebook community, but do you really share same interests in healthcare and education for your kids and safety? No, because you're scattered all over the world. Um, physical communities or, or perhaps professional things like uh, maybe say gig workers working for a particular company have shared interest and outcomes. You need to have a real community where uh, your good is the next guy's good. And what that can do is lead to the same sort of notion as labor unions or credit unions, data unions. Um, and that sounds a little exotic, but actually credit unions are already uh, legally commissioned to hold data for you, not own your data, to hold it and help you use it. And there's a number of cooperatives that are already doing this sort of things, and I'll talk about that. It's not complicated. Um, and and when you have a union like that, what you've done is you you still own your data. Your data is there. You can look at it. You can withdraw it. But you can also get insights as a community. You can say, well, okay, can can the data union look across all the data in uh, in this community and figure out if we're getting health services the way we ought to. Are the banks treating us fair? What about the police? What about, you know, you need to be able to look at lots of data to be able to determine these things. And that's one of the things that's very different about data is, is that individual data is not worth very much. Community data is worth a great deal. So, so these are cooperative institutions that allow people to pool data. They don't give up ownership, but they allow to give joint insights. Um, so a sort of characterization of this is each community uh, has a, a cooperative from which they calculate things like health outcomes, uh, financial outcomes, things like that. They have a little dashboard, your community dashboard, which is built on your data being held for you by a co-op. And you can get an example of this at opportunity.mit.edu. We're just starting this, uh, but it shows for uh, a small city in Australia, actually, you know, how the banking system works for people, how it works for communities, how the transportation system works. Uh, we'll be having the health uh, system on that sort of dashboard uh, and uh, educational system soon. So to give you a sense of it. So what's in that dashboard? What is community data? Well, it's a little like census data. You can't give uh, uh, out insights that have any individual data in it. You don't want to violate people's privacy. But you can give aggregate things, like what's the average earning power here? What's the unemployment statistic here? What's the prevalence of, uh, I'll just pick one, breast cancer or COVID or diabetes in my community? Those don't threaten individual privacy. So that's a little bit like census data, but rapid, uh, much more articulated. 
But we found that there's one other thing that's not normally in the census data, and that is flows between people. Where do people work? Where do they play? Where do they shop? Where do they go to the hospital? And those flows, again, don't threaten individual privacy. You can prove that. There's mathematical proofs of it, uh, as long as you follow certain basic rules for, for how you aggregate things. But they enable you to understand essentially the blood of the community, how things flow in and up, people, money, other sorts of services. And you can do a wide variety of things. For instance, we've shown that you can use this type of community aggregate data to predict uh, COVID outbreaks weeks in advance. That's pretty amazing. You can say, oh, okay, my community is safe. As long as I stay within this community, I've got a week even though they're having a big outbreak next door. And why? Because not many people from my community go there or vice versa. Today, you don't know that. If there's an outbreak anywhere near you, you say, oh, well, maybe it's coming here. Maybe yes, but maybe not. Um, you can do some really surprising things. Like, for instance, on, on four different continents, we've shown that economic growth of a neighborhood you're not talking about the city, the country, all those are your neighborhood, uh, depends on the diversity of stores and people coming to your neighborhood. So that's something you haven't really heard before. And it accounts for almost 50% of the variance. What that means is that it is a stronger effect than anything else you've heard for. In fact, it's stronger than everything else, education, investment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all put together, incredibly strong. You can even do things like the following, which is you can say, well, Gia, should we put a grocery store here? Should we put a clinic here? And you can predict what the sales of that, that grocery store or clinic will be before it exists. And you can do this dramatically better than today's commercial systems for predicting success or failure of stores. One of the major problems that's wrong with creating small businesses or franchise operations is you can't tell which ones will be successful. Well, with community data, you can. That's amazing. That really changes the table for local investment in communities. And, and these nationwide uh, uh, studies we did previously, you can map all sorts of things you might care about. <coughs> Transportation, many communities don't have good public transportation and aren't aware of it. Uh, public health is bad in many communities. That is arguably the major factor in the disparities between COVID death rates in different communities is that they had pre-existing diabetes, other sorts of heart problems, et cetera, uh, and that made them weaker when COVID came. And then of course, there's also medical things, but these are health things beforehand that the community was not aware of. If they had been aware of, maybe they would have been able to do something about it. So communities are beginning to use their data. So you say, well, this sounds all nice, but isn't that sort of pie in the sky? Well, let me give you a little factoid. Here's something you've never heard of. And RECA, <laughs> what's that? Those are electricity cooperatives in the United States, it's an association of cooperative. And it turns out that most of the electric grid, 56% of the electric grid in the United States was not built by the government. It was not built by power companies. It was built by community cooperatives. 
communities got together and said, hey, we'd like this electric stuff. That's pretty good. And they pooled their money and they borrowed some money and they built electric grids, 56% of the United States. Um, there are other sorts of unions like this that are already existing. So for instance, we do work with consumers union. Consumers union rates cars and, you know, uh, pans and all sorts of stuff. And now they're beginning to rate data. They're beginning to ask, you know, can we help our customers, our, our members? It's a non-for-profit, right? Can we help our members control and use their data? Unions are particularly interested in this. Ones particularly that are focused on gig workers. Gig workers have no idea what they're paid. They have no idea what to do. Are they being treated fairly? But they have all that data on their phone. But of course, data from one person does very little to you. What we're helping them do is, is share that data to be held in cooperatives. So it's still your data. But now you can look across all the gig workers that work for a particular company and say, what's going on? Is this fair? What, what are the strategy that we should have? So it empowers the community. CUNA is the Credit Union National Association. So it's all these credit unions that have social missions that are there to improve neighborhoods, to loan to local stores, loan to local businesses, to help communities revitalize. And the fact that we can now build tools that help them do this much more reliably mean that they can offer much lower interest rates, they can be much more successful at helping communities get better. And finally, open music. So, uh, you know, artists today, musicians, video, uh, have no way really of being successful. There's too many intermediates, too many middlemen, and there's no live performance anymore. So we've built a system to help them control their data, which is their music, uh, that's being now used by music students uh, across the world and is beginning to be uh, uh, used and there's negotiations to, to have the end licensors, you know, Spotify and stuff, use this directly, cutting out all the middlemen. Pretty interesting. Um, so how can we do this technically? Just a little bit of the sort of technical thing, because it may seem like it's black magic. It's not. Um, the thing that comes from uh, GDPR and the work we've done in the past is the notion that you do not make data lakes. I know you like to think about this, but don't do it. Um, Instead, leave data where it's collected in the hands of the individuals and build query systems that query people's data. Don't put the data in one spot. That way it's much less uh, uh, attractive to bad actors. And you have to be open about it. So um, is this model of currently when we think about things, we think about, oh, let's stick it all in one spot, right? Um, and that's just asking for problems. The data is out of control of the owners. The data is all in one spot, so it can be stolen all at once. Instead, building a sort of question and answering type system. Um, the logical layer is different than the physical layer. So the data can all be in the cloud. You don't necessarily want it on your phone, for instance, because you can lose your phone. But you can have lots of cloud accounts um, that are distributed in various ways. And logically, you still control your own data. You can delete it if you want, whatever you want, but you give permissions for your cooperative to ask questions and get insights about your community. 
And we've done things like we helped Fidelity Investments build a system like this. Uh, they spun it off. It's called Akoya. It lets you move your retirement income among different banks and different investment houses without sharing your personal data. You have to record who you are once so that you have a secure digital identity, but you don't have to tell all these people every time you move things who you are. So it's, it really dramatically changes privacy and control of data. We've worked with the EU to do the same thing for their international systems, the EU systems called Eurostat. Um, if you do this in the sort of preferred way, you're going to use something like a blockchain. Unless you're sort of crazy, you won't use anything to do with Bitcoin or sadly even Ethereum. There are much better ways to do this that are highly energy efficient, highly reliable, highly high speed. Um, essentially, a blockchain is just a ledger. It's a shared ledger. And, and so in this way of thinking about things, you know, you post a request with your uh, permissions and ID. Uh, that request is a, a well-known agreed algorithm. A data owner will run that algorithm on their data and post the answer so that you can audit what's happening constantly and you can be sure who's in the game. Um, and you see lots of things beginning to happen like this. You could look up the architecture we've designed. It's called TradeCoin. Libra took a lot of this to be able to build up their system. Uh, except they sort of forgot about the governance and so, you know, Facebook, what are you kidding? Um, uh, we just helped the Swiss uh, do an equivalent thing to what you might think of as Libra uh, using our architecture, uh, which allows all uh, transference, safe distributed transference of all digital records, medical records, financial records, ownerships like ETFs, other sorts of data, and that's through the Swiss Post and Swisscom. Singapore has a similar sort of system that they're releasing uh, and hope to spread throughout the Indian Ocean area. Uh, it's called UBIN, and it's backed by Temasek and the uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore. And, and there's others. Just yesterday, uh, we re helped. We, uh, it was announced that uh, Bermuda released the first central bank digital currency. And we did a lot of the uh, uh, anti-money laundering and digital identity for that. So this stuff's here. It's getting out there. These are actual commercial services. The world is changing quickly. So if you want to know more about the sort of technical things and how you build this stuff and what it looks like, there's this book, MIT Press, um, as Trusted Data, and this new book that I mentioned at the beginning called Building the New Economy. Um, it talks about cooperatives, it talks about the structures you want to have, how you can use it for music, how you can use it for uh, community infrastructure, uh, what the uh, other sorts of changes that you might want to have with it. And it's available for free uh, at that URL. Just Google Pendlin New Economy, you'll, you'll find it. So with that, I'll stop and we'll have some questions, okay? Great, fantastic. Thank you very much, Sandy, for, for sharing that. How exciting um, for, for such a relevant text, um, particularly at this time. So I invite everyone and I encourage everyone to check it out along with the other books. Uh, I'll also throw in social physics, by the way, if you want to get a more general kind of exciting storytelling 
um, introduction to a lot of the work Sandy and his lab is currently doing, and I think also the wider ecosystem at this point. Uh, so Sandy, thanks again for sharing your insights. You're very excited sure. for your work and everything that flows from it. So at this point, I would uh, love to introduce uh, Arvinder Singh Kang, who is our current entrepreneur in residence and uh, the program manager for the entrepreneur training program, many of whom, uh, most of whom we have currently on the uh, webinar at the moment. Um, so Arvinder, over to you to take the questions from our audience and um, have a fireside chat with Sandy. Uh, thank you, Navarup. Um And uh, thank you, Sandy. That was uh, that was wonderful. Um, actually, my, yeah, my background. Uh, I've uh, the last company that I founded was um, uh, was a co-founded. Uh, dealt exactly with that, which is uh, you know using public data to predict the state of uh, economic growth in in cities and uh, and governments. And yeah, there are some interesting uh, insights and stories you know that you can share at other time. Uh, but yeah, I'd be really interested in hearing about that. Right? Yeah, that would be great. So, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll pose another question. Then we have a series of questions that is coming from our um, uh, from our listeners. Uh, so you talked about this idea of um, you know the two interesting concepts. One was the idea of community. You said you know the idea of community um, is uh, community. Your good is other person's good, right? And um, you know traditional sense of communities was a little bit of you know, what is the shared way of, of lifestyle? So I think as we start to look at, you know, different communities, uh, we also start to look at, uh, you know, the inequality, the asset inequality, the data inequality. Um, so my question to you is, you know, so smaller communities, how do they build, how do you think about, uh, you know, they can build these sort of ecosystems uh, without the winner-take-all kind of strategy where, you know, data, as you said, an individual data is not as useful until it is within a community. But the smaller communities typically have far lesser resources to build the kind of ecosystems, uh, Facebook versus you can call about, you know, some sure. other social network, right? So how do you look at that? So, so here's um, two things. One is um, we just had a paper in the National Academy of Science, very, you know, like, woohoo, right? Um, and it shows that the way people talk about the winner take all and curing that, you know, by breaking them up is probably a mistake. If you break up Facebook, you're going to get three companies almost the same size. So you're actually increasing the winner take all. Uh, the right way to do that is to encourage the grassroots things and protect them from unfair competition. So, for instance, Facebook, Google, etc., all do these aqua hires. Anything that looks like a good startup, they buy so that they never get that competition. Right? You have to stop that, but you also have to encourage high fitness uh, uh, startups. So, this is actually um, a, a, in that area of trying to reduce this winner-take-all sort of environment. The other thing that's really interesting is, is that, as I said, this is an unusual economic environment. We haven't seen this sort of environment for, what is it, 60, 80, 80 years at this point. Uh, so almost nobody remembers it. But, but at the end of World War II, is a situation very similar to this here. So when you have really low interest rates, um, 
What that means is people who can access uh, loans or capital of some sort uh, can be very highly leveraged, okay? But you have to put that into something that is a real productive asset, not a financial instrument, um, because the actual rate of inflation is quite high. It's not the, the CPI that the U.S. calculates in most people. They have to keep that very low so that they don't get killed with interest rate payments. So CPI is like uh, survival inflation. But if you actually want to have a good life, you know, college, medical, etc., inflation rate runs five, six percent. So so you can borrow money very cheaply, very low interest rates, but you have to invest it in things that will go along with the inflation. Like, for instance, can the community build their own housing where they own it rather than somebody outside? And so we've uh, spun up an example of this uh, currently as a prototype or first example in Kansas City where the economics of communities, you just pay rent like normal, but after five to 10 years, you own the building. Well, that's really interesting. You couldn't do that a year ago. Now you can. Um, so there's a variety of things like that where you can have the community own itself, not be owned by others. You can build productive assets, which will increase in value with inflation. Uh, it's a unique period for the next sort of five to 10 years, uh, hopefully not longer than that. Um, and so, so that's at least one way to do it. And, and as this paper that we had shows, um, that may be the most effective way to battle this winner take all thing. So, and, and let me just also just sort of point out another thing. So 100 million Americans are members of credit unions at the moment. Um, and you've got similar figures in other parts of the world. What would happen if those credit unions were also data unions? Okay, so that would be 100 million people who have control of their data and could go to Facebook and say, excuse me, legally, you don't get access to my data directly. You have to go through my, my data union. This is the way the law is today. It's like, it's like um, in legal things, you have a lawyer. The lawyer represents you. Nobody can say, no, I won't talk to your lawyer. Right? And if you show up with 100 million people and say, you have to go through the local community organizations to have access to data, to, from the personal point of view, you still do use your phone, same as always. But from the legal point of view, Facebook has to negotiate with all those data unions. Right. And, you know, when the data, the data unions will push back, they cannot ignore 100 million people. So there's a political uh, aspect to this. That's maybe a, more than you wanted, but that's uh, uh, one of those things I'm passionate about, I guess. So I think uh, just a small follow up question on that uh, before we go into the other questions. Um, so what, how do you see the role of governments? Uh, because a uh, number of people, uh, you know, in the in the attendance, uh, uh, you know, it, the, the the ecosystem is a little bit different in the developing world than in the in the developed world. And sure. in the developing world, for example, I take an example of India, for example, a lot of money is being, you know, transferred in, uh, you know, into organizations that control a lot of the data, but the assets themselves, you know, are highly, you know, underpriced. And, you know, so there, there's this disparity of, uh, you know, um, 
the the data around certain things and the assets on the ground and yeah. uh, you know what is what how do you see the role of the governments to facilitate and protect right those kind of uh, you know data privacy and and data communities as you say so there is a role for the government but you know i have to say i'm not really optimistic that the government's going to move quickly um as i think probably everybody on the call will share that lack of optimism but i mean take india so um siwa is a good example siwa is the women's cooperative has local chapters everywhere um you know if if they also began managing copies of data and having insights from that they could really optimize the salary the safety etc of the women in their cooperative and 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 the regulation for that is already there you might have to fight in court because someone would come up with some crazy idea that says no you can't control your a copy of your data but but it's on weak ground even based uh, on existing law uh, and i think that this is a little bit like the labor union movement back uh, in the us and in europe 100 years ago um, where uh, these communities of people need to take control of their data which they can do it's technically it's not difficult right and 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 begin recognizing that they have this resource data the community has a resource it never had before and it can make uh, uh, objections and and arguments that it could never before and it can take actions with much greater reliability than it ever could before because today, you know, communities don't know what their situation is. They don't know who's doing what to them. And, and by taking control of the sort of data streams that they contribute, um, they can answer those questions and be much more effective. So that may not be a great answer, um, but, but it's an answer. You know, at one level, the fact that you've got Adahar in, in India is great because you have at least some reasonable sense of digital identity where before you had nothing for most people right now adahar has its problems but but um but it's i think a lot better than nothing and uh so it's a question of leveraging that and yeah i know there's the court decisions and so forth but but i don't see any barrier in india for people being able to uh leverage that together with fairly cheap data storage that you see. And the fact that you get smartphones everywhere in India now um, helps a lot. And of course, phones everywhere. Uh, that means that there's, there's reasonable ways to coordinate with people, have distributed governance and so forth. I mean, just India as an example, right? Yeah, thank you, thank you. I think uh, yeah, you nailed, uh, uh, nailed the, uh, you know, you kind of stuck uh, on its head. Um, I think also, you know, within that context, it always is, uh, you know, how do you use the data? How do you, um, how do you make use? And you know, I think the role of the governments is becomes very important there. I'll go to the first question that is, uh, you know, from uh, Chris. He says, "Dear Dr. Alex, uh, I'm working on EMR and EHR interpretation for processing data from these results <clears throat> in critical diagnosis, alongside of medical imaging." How do you create a principle for maintaining an approach that addresses bias in modeling? Well, so the way um, we work for, 
have done audits of the, the social support systems for a couple of countries now, Colombia, Mexico, etc. And uh, the key thing is, is you have to know what data went in, what decisions were made, and then you have to have a gold standard that you compare against. Uh, and um, so, for instance, in the case of Colombia or Mexico, they have a somewhat expensive uh, process of developing a, a reference set of households where they visit the household and, and ask all sorts of questions about them so they know as well as is possible what is the truth of the situation for this, say, 3,000 uh, households. And then when they look at the decision systems that they build for social support, for like Prospera and things like that, um, they compare what decisions that system will make against the house visits to see if it's uh, biased against rural people versus urban, uh, poor women versus richer women, whatever. Um, and like, for instance, uh, we did this this sort of audit for Colombia, and we discovered something like a million people were getting benefits that shouldn't, and something like a million people were not getting benefits who should have been getting benefits. Uh, and the way we did that is compared to this gold standard, and then we allowed people to tune the decisions and the rules uh, to be able to much more fair. And so going forward, um, when they enroll people and people go in and off, it'll be a much more fair process than it was before. And I think that in anything like this, you have to you have to audit what you're doing. There, there's no magic bullet uh, beyond that. Uh, thank you. Uh, our next question comes from Chidi. Um, he says, what conventional life or business advice uh, do you disagree with? Well, uh, I mean, there's there's bunches of things I disagree with, right? Um, so uh, it depends what sort of advice you're getting, I guess, right? Uh, I... I think that the um, many people have this uh, sort of idea about, and probably not this crowd. This is the reason this is a hard question to answer. Um, that that you need to have sort of command and control within companies, and I think it, it's that's a mistake because it, it quashes innovation, it creates silos, things like that. But every company does it. So when we go and we look at patterns of communication within a company, you always see silos. You always see knowledge that this part of the company has that that part doesn't know about. And, and it's very hard to break down silos because people feel like their job security depends on them controlling their processes. And that's why setting up things which are sort of data sharing or question answering is much less threatening to people. Uh, but it starts by just knowing who talks to who, right? Not not on an individual level, but an you know a group or institutional level. You know, does sales actually talk to product development? Most companies know. Do you know how stupid that is? <laughs> right? I mean, who knows the customers? The sales guys, right? Why? What? You know, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so that's one example. Um, I think a lot of things need to be rethought today, because I think the world is suddenly much more digital than it used to be a year ago. 
the financial incentives are very different now than they used to be uh, just a year ago. The, um, the notions of the need for higher trust interactions with communities and customers is, is much heightened from what it was. Uh, so I don't know what the, what the, the one thing that people do. Um, I think there's a bunch of stupid things that people do. <laughs> it's really a different world. Right? Thank you. Thank you. Um, so the next question, uh, this comes from Rong. Uh, she says, uh, you are a pioneer of variables. Uh, how do you think of current technologies and its potential, for example, virtual reality? Um, how do you think, what are the different technologies that you think will enable, um, you know, this, you know, the, the technologies of tomorrow? Well, um, I'm big about data and AI, right? So you, I, IOT is really coming, Internet of Things. Everything gets little sensors in it. Everything communicates on a network. And we've just begun to see the beginning of that. It's not about 5G. It's not about, it's, it's this sort of entire ecosystem where, you know, contactless payment, digital transfer, being able to monitor things as they move around in the world, like knowing where, where a package is at any one time, knowing what the supply chain looks like. All of those things are, are new and we've just begun to scratch the surface of, of what that means. The biggest transformation I see is uh, moving from a sort of internet-centric world. So we had no digital, then we had internet, which just transformed the world in many ways. But we're seeing another thing, which is, is that um, the internet was a communication medium that did not have identification, did not have security, was not legally enforceable. I could say, oh, I'll do something. It's not enforceable, right? It's most laws, it's this piece of paper that you have to get notarized or something that's the legally enforceable document. We're seeing a move towards a, 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 a network of transaction platforms. So this thing I mentioned that we helped set up, Swiss Trust uh, uh, Chain can look at that, or Project Ubin, or the Chinese system, it's a smart system, uh, and the uh, whole variety of these. Libra, it, when it's reincarnated, may end up being something like this. Um, what they give you is they give you a secure, encrypted, distributed platform for doing legally enforceable, moderate, monitorable, auditable transactions. A lot of words. But basically what that means is you can really do stuff without lawyers, paperwork, fraud, risk of fraud, etc., in ways that you've never, ever been able to do before. Uh, and, and that's really transformative. Um, it means that you can actually look at the processes in ways like, you know, who makes the things that go into the things that I end up buying? You can't answer that today. You will be able to answer that in the not too distant future. Um, and in some cases, you can do a pretty good job already. Uh, that means you can engineer it. One of the interesting things is that it means that the conventional notion of a corporation may become much less important. So why do we have corporations? 
It's to have lower internal transaction costs. That's the reason, right? That's the classic sort of uh, uh, reason. Well, but wait a second. If these new platforms make transactions practically free and completely trustworthy, why do we need the corporation? And the answer is we don't. You can have really adaptive um, uh, partnerships among a wide variety of actors which are specific for each particular thing that you're trying to do. So in a certain sort of beginning sense, this is what Amazon does. It connects lots of manufacturers to lots of buyers. Uh, it's a platform that does this. Uh, Walmart helps all those things that they sell. They also help manufacture them. They run the logistics chains for all those little toys and devices also. When you go to Walmart, they'll say, that's a great idea. Why don't we help you manufacture that for like 80% of the price that you're currently paying? And they use their logistics platform to help that physical thing happen. And now they're using that to extend that all the way to the final customer. And eventually, and like almost now, you get something where if a whole bunch of people click on yell red sweater, that determines a, a logistics chain that may start anywhere in the world that makes yarn, that does the netting, that does the shipping, that delivers it to your house uh, in a way that is, is really custom, is really just in time, is incredibly agile. Uh, and those sorts of things, I think, are the things that are going to be the biggest transformations. Uh, and you can see that, for instance, in healthcare. Our healthcare system is built on the sort of, you know, 1870s model of the the rich matron takes a, a carriage into London to see the famous doctor in their office, right? I mean, it's, it's clinics and stuff. Why doesn't it happen at home? Well, it's going to begin to happen at home. The pandemic has has opened the floodgates. Why don't hospitals talk to each other and share data more? Well, I think it's going to begin to happen uh, in much better ways so that drug companies, hospitals, treatments are not these silos of proprietary interest, but much more webs of learning. That's some of the implications of it. And, and the thing about that, unlike VR, unlike uh, probably quantum, um, is that that's in the next three, four years. So people have been talking about VR forever. Um, it's great for these sort of isolated experiments. You may get fancier things in offices, but I think, you know, if you started a business in that area, you'll be bankrupt by the time <laughs> it really takes off. I'm just not, uh, I think his time has not come yet. I think that takes us to our next question. This is from Mike. You know, you talked about one technology that enables uh, that is blockchain. But beyond blockchain, what are the technologies that you think uh, can support more responsible data handling by governments and companies? And um, yeah. So, and and what are the other technologies that you see, you know, in the space of democratization uh, of 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 the data in the next two or five years? Well, the biggest thing is this notion of federated learning. So that data is only held by the people that collect the data. You never have data moving. You don't have copies of data. Um, so so uh, exactly what that means can be variable. 
But I mean, here's a here's an example which you may or may not be aware of. On your phone, you have this thing called swipe that lets you do texting really quickly. You just swipe from letter to letter, right? So that is updated by AI to tune it to how people do things. And uh, it's done using uh, secure multi-party computation, a federated learning thing. So the data never leaves your phone. Um, but yet you get this signal at the center, which uh, can do machine learning that then updates all the algorithms so they all work better. How does it actually work? Well, on the phone, it computes some features that are important. And that makes a little vector that says, here's the future features for my phone. And then it arbitrarily and randomly flips the bits of, of that feature. So it now is just garbage, okay? It then sends that garbage back home to the center. But it turns out if you add up a couple hundred thousand of those, the randomness all cancels out. So what you do is you get the average feature vector for a wide class of, of users. And you can do machine learning and optimization on that. And then you send back the new parameters for making better uh, software. But the data has never left the phone. And it's not expensive. And you can't hack it in the middle because those vectors are really just junk, the things that are being sent. Um, and there are versions of this now that are just dramatically different than the way we think about it. And, and the cool thing is not only does it not threaten privacy in anything like the same sort of way, but it's very, very auditable. You know what things were sent to who when. And, and what that means is you can have automatic processes that make sure that there aren't flows of data where there shouldn't be. Is this realistic? Well, you should look into the country of Estonia, uh, which set up a system like this for all government systems back in the sort of 2000, when they shortly after they left the Soviet Union, because they knew they were going to have very sophisticated cyber attacks. And so they wanted the most robust, auditable system they could do with no copies of data anywhere. And it's been running for 20 years. That's roughly the model that now the EU has adopted. I helped AT&T do that. I've helped uh, Intuit do it. I've helped uh, Fidelity do it. It's just a better way to do things, right? Uh, and in the Estonian example, for instance, they've had essentially no examples of data theft out of these government systems because the moment you touch something, it's visible. It's not like, like in this country, you say, oh my God, last year, 43 million things were, no. People can see their data all the time. And the moment somebody touches it, it's visible. So that doesn't mean you get no crime, uh, but it means all the sort of traditional ways of doing crime suddenly get much, 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 much harder. I'm gonna to have to go here, okay? So um, this has been super great. I hope this is really interesting. Um, and uh, happy to answer emails to people. Thank you, both of you. Thank you, all the people hey. who I can't see. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, take care, okay? Take care as well. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to join. Yeah. And... Uh,
yeah, so that concludes our, uh, you know, our very first, uh, you know, um, this, uh, this, uh, the Digital Economist speaker series. Um, we've been doing it, you know, for for a, for a while now. This is the first one we made public. Um, so, uh, you know, visit if you uh, you know visit our website. You know, have a look at you know uh, the kind of initiatives that the Digital Economist uh, is doing. And if we want to talk a little bit more about uh, you know or fear you know what is in the future pipeline. Sure, um, I've shared a few links with everyone. Thanks again everyone for joining today. I hope you found the conversation to be fruitful and engaging. There are definitely ways to engage more. So please feel free to reach out to us at info at the digital economist.com. Uh, you can check out our website and also engage with us in through social media. Uh, next week, we have Harald Stieber, who is a senior economist at the European Commission, who will be uh, talking on the Digital Economist Speaker Series. So we invite you again to, to join us and engage with our um, upcoming speaker. Um, and as far as the initiatives of the Digital Economist go, we are very excited with our position and policy paper series that our brilliant fellows at uh, TDE or the Digital Economist um, put out as open innovation uh, for the community to learn and, uh, and share. So please check them out also at the website. Uh, you could just go at the digitaleconomist.com forward slash center of excellence to find these papers. Um, and uh, also you can nominate any speakers for uh, the, the series as well. Um, and again, just send us an email or reach out to us via LinkedIn and uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to make that happen. So thanks again, everyone for joining today and uh, have a great rest of your day and hope to see you soon again.